Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast. Join Corbin and Alan, along with guest hosts, as they bring their love for the cinema to discuss films from every genre and decade. Learn about the history of the film, little-known facts, and insightful explorations while they enjoy discussing your favorite film. The curtain is rising and your podcast is starting. So sit back, relax, and enjoy your guide to the silver screen. Welcome back, listeners, to the eighth installment in our M. Night Shyamalan movie review series. Today we are reviewing The Happening. This is your co-host, Corbin. I'm Alan. And I'm completely new to this Shyamalan film. I've never seen it before, but Alan, you've seen this one before, right? Oh yeah, uh, I actually heard about this. Oh man, I watched it first time a few years ago. I know it was in college when I first watched it and found it to be mm, pretty amazing. And so I think I actually owned it on DVD once maybe, um, and then sold the DVD to get the Blu-ray copy and then I eventually got the Blu-ray copy. But yes, I have seen this at least three, four times, I want to say, in the last three, four years. So yeah, this is nothing new to me. This is uh, probably the Shyamalan movie that I've seen the most, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah, this is, of course, the one I've seen the least. And yeah. my only recollection of the film is seeing the trailers on TV and before theaters, of course, it's a Shyamalan film, so they're always going to make the trailer look kind of dark and foreboding. Right. And I just remember this film looked very traumatizing. It showed people jumping off of buildings and throwing themselves in front of lawnmowers, all kinds of bizarre suicide. It looked really dark, and I just understood Shyamalan films were dark and scary, and I think kids at school saw it. and. Uh, the film came out 11 years ago so the film came out when i was 13. yeah i was 13 years old so not old enough to see this one because this is the first Shyamalan film to receive an r rating right and so far i think it's the only one that's gotten an r rating at least as of right now uh fun fact about the r rating when so long story short Shyamalan was pitching this movie around to various different studios and eventually 20th Century Fox picked it up, which is kind of ironic because in the last movie we did it, we talked about how uh, Shyamalan moved away from Disney, who now owns 20th Century Fox, because they he said that they, did, that they didn't value individualism. That aside, um, so he pitched it to Fox and Fox says, we love it, but one condition, it has to be rated R. Uh, and so M. Night Shyamalan thought about it a little bit and came back and said, all right, I'll do it. We'll do rated R uh, version of the happening. And so there, that's kind of where the rated R, I guess, rating came from. They actually tried to go for rated R because they had to, they went, they tried to go for rated R off of a PG-13 script, more or less. Uh, and then apparently, according to M. Night Shyamalan, there was a lot of graphics Stuff in it enough to warrant an NC-17, he says. What? Um, I don't really know how. I've seen the deleted scenes. I don't really know exactly if that's true. That's just what he said. Um, so, yeah. So far, the only... So, the first and only rated R Shyamalan movie that we have. Yeah, that R rating did surprise me considering mm -hmm. all of his films have previously been PG-13 and have been plenty dark. 
just off of that PG-13 rating. And that's pretty rare for a studio to come to the director and say, you got to make it rated R. Usually it's the director saying, I want the R rating. And the studio says, no, we're going to either cut it down to a PG-13 or you're going to have to do this in order to get more ticket sales, get more people in seats because R-rated movies sometimes do really great depending on what they are but nevertheless when the director has more of a pg-13 track record they're going to want to keep them in that space so as not to alienate legally alienate a large portion of the audience right yeah it is very interesting that a studio would try go for an r rating uh nowadays it's used a bit more for marketing kind of like uh with deadpool or logan where they do take the R rating and actually do something or try to do something with it. And that is part of the sales pitch is that it is a adult's version of this, of this thing, uh, superhero or anti-hero. So I can kind of see maybe where they were going with it in that Shyamalan has done a lot of adult oriented, thematically adult oriented movies um, where they're heavy on themes and are still plenty dark, like with the sixth sense but are still PG-13. So maybe that was just part of the marketing with 20th Century. They thought maybe we could do something with this where we can take a director who is known for his PG-13 movies and make one that's rated R and see if we can get more money that way. I don't really know. I, there isn't really anything that I found that I guess would warrant me to say definitively that's what happened. I did find it funny when the film was opening. It said 20th Century Fox and I thought, oh, what happened to Warner Brothers? Because mm -hmm. last time we talked about, like you said, the Disney subsidiary dropped Shyamalan. So then he went to Warner Brothers and clearly Warner Brothers wasn't going to work with him again. I'm guessing probably because of how bad the film did financially for them. They just didn't want to go off of that again. That's, that's my guess is we talked about Lady in the Water. It flopped pretty bad in the box office. So my guess is after that happened, uh, he probably tried to see if he could find a different studio to take his picture. Uh, he may have tried Warner Bros. again, don't really know. Um, but surprisingly, The Happening did pretty good in the box office, considering, ex especially considering uh, what happened last time, because last time it made, it didn't even make back its budget domestically. And I don't think it made, it made no, it made 2.8 million above its budget worldwide, which we know is bad. But this time, with a budget of 48 million, it opened uh, had an opening weekend of 30.5 million, grossed in total domestically 64 and a half, foreign 98.9, and with a worldwide total with 163.4 million dollars in the box office, which is good stuff, especially compared to Lady in the Water. Oh yeah, it grossed a lot more money than Lady in the Water, which I was surprised to see, but I'm guessing. The marketing, once again, was saying this is an R-rated Shyamalan film. This is not going to be kind of a fanciful fairy tale like we saw last time. You're really going to right. get Dark Shyamalan as everybody liked with The Sixth Sense and Unbreakable in the Village and stuff. And yeah, right. I did notice his budget is $22 million less than last time. Right. Um, $48 million is not a very high budget, but nevertheless... He doesn't really need one for this movie. And most of it's probably spent on uh, abandoned roadways and CGI blood. Right. And I think also what helps it is just when it was released, because when it came out, 
pretty much the box office was flooded with PG and PG-13 movies because when it came out on week one, it may have opened at number three, but at the same time, Incredible Hulk, Kung Fu Panda, Domestic the Zohan, and Indiana Jones, all of which are PG-13 outside of Kung Fu Panda, were in the box office. That was a top five spaces, including uh, The Happening. And then, of course, next week, still had a bunch of... I, th- I th- Now, The Love Guru did release the week after that. I think that is rated R. But still, for the next three weeks, everything that's in the theater is pretty much PG or PG-13. So my guess is, because it is rated R, and it is about middle of the summer at this point, uh, it did. A, it also really helped with his box office numbers because it's kind of like an, an adult alternative to all these movies that are more family oriented or kid oriented. Yeah, that is a really good point that adults didn't really have anything to go to where they wouldn't be distracted by kids. Right. And this R rated alternative. Yeah, that that's probably why it did so well at number three, even the opening at number three is nothing really to write home about. Although I guess these numbers are a good or a, a better sign for Shyamalan than especially last time. But right. yeah, with Marvel's kickoff to what has culminated in the highest grossing franchise of all time, what began with the Iron Man and the Incredible Hulk. Yeah, there's no way it was going to beat uh, the Hulk, which came, which was a number one at the box office opening right. weekend. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I, so, yeah, it, surprisingly, this movie did pretty all right. Uh once again, box office related, which is, again, pretty interesting considering what happened last time. But yeah, my guess is also with Shyamalan's name and with being and with it being an alternative and with it being under 20th Century Fox, which I'm sure um, helped a lot with advertising. No wonder this movie did pretty good in the box office. Scores, however, are a very different <laughs> matter. <laughs> yeah, very different. Um, okay, uh, I'll go with the highest score first. Uh, IMDb has this at a straight 5.0, which is last time I think Lady in the Water was at a 5.5 or so. Yes, um, it was. Yeah, this is half a point lower, which is pretty significant. Um, this is way past average and is dipping into bad, if not so good that it is bad. Um, <laughs> Then you've also got the cinema score, which is surprisingly a D. Oh, yeah. I yeah. saw that. That is absolutely horrible. That shows audiences hated this film. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think we noted, I don't think we've ever really seen a D yet with cinema score, at least for the ones that we've been tracking. I know the only one that has gone lower is Mother, but we haven't actually talked about that on the podcast. Right. So seeing a D is <laughs> rip, not very good. <laughs> so... It's- it's a little funny, though, because this has some similar ideas to the movie Mother, because Mother is talking about how humanity is kind of this infection in the earth. Right. And then towards the end of the film, we get that pretty much spelled out where it's like humanity has become uh, the problem. Don't worry. That's not really a spoiler or anything. And, and audiences hated both movies. That's I guess that's, that's the true. connection I was trying to say. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, they, they were not happy for either of them, although Mother more so than uh, The Happening. But even yeah. that's not saying too much because this is Metascore. So <laughs> the line between a D and an F is uh, it's not very far considering. But other scores, Metascore 34, uh, Letterboxd average of 1.9, Rotten Tomatoes 18% critic score, 24% audience score. So as we can see here, especially compared to last time with Lady in the Water, this is significantly lower, although the Metascore is about the same. But everything else is 
getting lower uh, than what we had last week. And so far, up until this point, is the lowest rated uh, Shyamalan movie that has been released. And I wouldn't be surprised if it is if it keeps that crown of the lowest rated Shyamalan movie if uh, Last Airbender doesn't top that. The only thing that gave me hope that this would at least be a visually pleasing experience when going into the film and an audibly pleasing experience is James Newton Howard's Back with the Score. Right. And out of the shadows comes Tak Fujimoto, who is back. Yeah. We didn't see him for the past couple movies. Last time we saw him was Signs. And of course, he did a brilliant job on The Sixth Sense. Right. Which is really interesting because, I mean, we'll probably talk about some cinematography here later. But it is surprising that Tak Fujimoto uh, shot this movie. That's really all I can say without, I guess, giving my hand out. I did notice this is the eighth highest grossing in the series, of course, adjusting for inflation. And it's funny because this is Shyamalan's eighth film. So it's it did better than last time, but still coming in at eighth of I don't I don't know how many movies does he have, like 13 or something like that. Yeah, it's something like that. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of middle of the road. It's Mm -hmm. pretty much towards the bottom, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's definitely in the second half of all of his movies. So while it did okay comparatively to last week in last week's movie, um, sounds like overall didn't do as good uh, compared to what would come next or what has already happened. Right. Financially, it was a success. Critically and with the audiences, it was a complete failure. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And... I mean, it's also no surprise, especially those like myself who follow the uh, so good that it's bad mm-hmm. community of movies. Yeah, uh, this is, this movie is uh, no stranger to me. This is part of the reason why I I've seen this movie so many times is because it is on that list of <laughs> so good that it's bad or so bad that it's good movies. So it's no real secret um, that this movie is not great. In a lot of ways, if there are any good ways, if there are any good things about it. Um, so that's something going into it that, I mean, it was kind of hard for me to mask what uh, I guess I could. I guess it'd be, it was hard for me, what would normally be not so hard to try and go in with an open mind because I knew what I was getting myself into. Uh, whereas with Lady in the Water, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had hardly, hardly knew anything about it. Whereas this is the, the complete opposite story. I knew what I was getting into um, because I've seen it before and I, I owned it before. So this is, yeah, this is nothing that's nothing new to me, I guess. And I tried to go in with as much of an open mind as I possibly could. And I really did uh, do that. The only other thing I knew was, yeah, from what Alan said, I, I heard it was so bad it was good. Chris Duckman has a very well done hilariosity review of it, yeah. which I had watched previously, but this movie, as we'll discuss, isn't completely memorable. So I, I didn't really remember anything going into this movie because I'd watched that a few years ago and I knew critically it was poorly received. So right. it's kind of hard to not go into a movie and expect it to be bad when I know everybody else thinks it's bad, but I like to go against the grain sometimes. 
and think for myself, of course. Right. And say, just because everybody else hates it for the most part, I might find some things that are pretty good in it or enjoyable in it. So that was my mindset going in. Right. And surprisingly, I'll say this before we get into it. I was able to find more good things in it than I guess I had initially thought would be possible. Because when I, f- when I first started writing down notes from the beginning, I was like, this is going to be hard to find the good stuff in it. Just because I knew what I was getting into. But I found some more good things in it that I honestly was expecting to. The one thing that I do want listeners to keep in mind while we discuss this film is that Mark Wahlberg is coming off of his Oscar nomination from That's right. Martin Scorsese's Best Picture of the Year, The Departed. And also Mark Wahlberg's brother, Donnie, was in the beginning of The Sixth Sense and the catalyst right. for the events of that entire film. I had completely forgotten about that one. Yeah, I actually, same here, When until I think it was... No, nah, it was on like uh, the Wikipedia page for it. It said it and I was like, really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I completely forgotten that was Donnie Wahlberg. Well, listeners, we are going to get into spoiler territory with our review of The Happening. So if you haven't seen the film and you don't want it spoiled for you, go ahead and click pause, go watch the film, come back and click play here on the podcast and we'll be ready to talk about it. The happening opens in Central Park with a couple of friends sitting on a bench. When all of a sudden, one of the girls pulls out a hairpin and jabs herself in the neck. Meanwhile, in Philadelphia, Elliot Moore, played by Mark Wahlberg, is teaching his class about the bees. But school is canceled when the teachers receive news of a terrorist attack that happened in Central Park. Elliot and his best friend Julian meet at the train station to get out of Philadelphia. What follows is a bunch of walking planks of wood... Talking, taking a road trip around rural Pennsylvania. Okay, not really, but kind of. Uh, not long after the departure, the train stops at Filbert, Pennsylvania, after, after the conductors lost all contact with neighboring stations, leaving the password, passengers nowhere to go. News breaks in a small restaurant that it may not be a terrorist attack after all, and that 90 miles from Filbert is a safe area. Julian finds a ride that's headed to print to Princeton to hopefully catch up with his wife after he lost contact with her a few hours ago, leaving leaving his daughter Jess with Elliot and Alma, who find a ride with a hot dog man and his hot dog wife. No more than a few miles down the road, however, they come across a dead end. They turn around and turn around and start heading back, but meet up with a bunch of people who are also attempting sanctuary, all with the same story. A few miles back, they are all in dead ends. Led by Private Oster, a group decide to split up in half and walk and walk to a nearby town. However, the neurotoxin catches up with them, attacking one of the groups. Elliot's group makes a run for it and splits up into smaller groups, as he theorizes the plants are giving off neurotoxins when too many people are gathered in one area. Elliot, Alma, Jess, Josh, and Jared find their way to a rundown home with a swing, but before they had enough time to get what they wanted from the house, Josh and Jared are shot and killed. Elliot, Alma, and Jess continue their journey and come across a crazy old lady named Mrs. Jones, a woman who's shut herself off from the world, living with alone with no electricity and unaware of the neurotoxin floating around. She lets them stay for dinner and gives them a place to stay, but becomes paranoid that they're here to steal her things. Mrs. Jones steps outside, but the wind is here to change her mind. She starts throwing her face into windows and eventually kills herself, much like the others affected by the same neurotoxin. Elliot becomes separated from Alma and Jess, who hide out in a storeroom that just so happened to have a talking tube connected to the house that is that was used as a safe house for slaves many years ago. Yes, the movie explains this, 
and it's only here for this one thing. Uh, the wind separates them, but Elliot says that he wants to be with Alma if he's going to die. So they meet up, but it's too late. The wind has moved on, and the whole event is now over, no more than 24 hours after it began. Three months pass. Jess is headed out for her first day of school. There is fear that the event is just a red tide, a warning of what is to come. And Alma is pregnant. Cut to Paris, France, where we find where we mirror the opening as the wind moves in again to cause another wave of suicides as credits roll. So the plot of this film is wholly unoriginal. I, I figured that out as soon as I got into the film and I didn't really know the plot of this film, except it yep. had something to do with uh, people just randomly committing suicide in gruesome ways or whatever way they could figure out. So, but right. the plot of this film where it's kind of an on the, on the run kind of thing where a group of strangers have to band together and flee out of the city into the country. We've seen this a dime a dozen. And so I would say this is the first time Shyamalan goes unoriginal. I understand he's trying to make a, more of a callback film, probably to the 1950s science fiction films, which I, I can name a couple for you here in just a minute, but nevertheless, an unoriginal plot for Shyamalan. Oh, yeah, I agree with you. This and he was definitely trying to go over something like the birds and an invasion of the body snatchers. And I can definitely see invasion of the body snatchers in this movie. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of what he's going for. here. And he did state that is his like his one of the one of the reasons for his movie is to call make callbacks to those, to those other movies. But, yeah, you are right. This is compared to what we've had before, even Lady in the Water. Uh, this is kind of unoriginal because, yeah, this kind of movie has been done. Uh, for a long time, uh, many movies, old ones, in fact, the ones I just mentioned, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, has a very similar plot. Yeah, and I'm also thinking Invasion of the Body Snatchers, War of the Worlds. Oh, yeah. Uh, just something to give you that kind of atmosphere and vibe. Almost all of the 50s science fiction movies had something to do with this weird science phenomenon, end of the world type thing, the day the year stood still. Uh, mm -hmm. things of all that kind but so nevertheless the one really good thing i'll say about this movie is the opening is a worthy callback to that 50 style and even a hitchcockian feel especially with james newton Howard's score which i'll probably say his score is like the best part of this movie his score is too good for the rest of this film anyway is is what i thought anyway and so as I'm beginning to watch this film and I'm going along with all of this, I'm thinking maybe this movie actually won't be that bad. Maybe everyone is too hard on it because I'm I'm actually intrigued and I'm thinking the opening is pretty good. Yeah, the opening, I mean, it's nothing spectacular compared to like even his previous movies, but I will say this. Yeah, I will agree the score that James Newton Howard does, although I would consider it to be probably his weaker, weakest score of these of the movies we talked about that he's that he has done with Shyamalan. Um, it is still nothing bad. It's it's definitely I actually did listen to it while I was kind of formulating my notes. Uh, it is it's got some pretty good tracks. There's a track actually at the very end during the climax that I especially do enjoy. So, yeah, James Newton Howard still does a very good job. Once again, I mean, he's not, he's a very good composer. I always like listening to his stuff. Now, one of the things I would love to criticize, I would not criticize, but I would love to uh, praise and then later criticize is the cinematography. I kind of mentioned this in the, in the opening. Uh, Tak Fujimoto does, and also to the extent of uh, 
in Rosh Hashanah, there are a lot, and I, I can count. I think I counted three or four times where there is just a long, uh, a long unbroken shot, and a couple of those are kind of complex. Um, the two off the top of my head that I can think of. One of the more complex ones is when they get stuck in the fork in the road, and then all those cars just kind of come out from all the roads. It's a really it's it's, it's all done in one shot, and it's rather complex compared to what I would have expected from a movie like this. Um, again, from what I've heard, another good example is the lady on the phone when there's just not one, not long after this uh, this car scene uh, where she's talking on the phone with her daughter, and it's just a long shot of her talking with her daughter and her slowly breaking down until, you know, her daughter eventually does die because the toxin has leaked into the room. There are some some pretty long and still interesting shots that are here, although I will talk about some later that are kind of the opposite. I don't, yeah, I don't have much of an issue with how this film looks. I think it looks far better in the beginning, the way that it's shot, I find to be a little more professional and engrossing. And then kind of, it seems to progress with the rest of the movie as you get farther into it. It doesn't feel as special anymore. It doesn't feel like anyone is really trying there towards the end. It just feels a little more run of the mill, I guess. That's how everything yeah. comes across to me towards the end, which I don't really understand. Not saying it, it doesn't look bad. It just looks fine. Um, I guess the other positive I'll say is it is eerie when everyone just stops. And there's always that one person that hasn't caught up with it yet. And we're following from their perspective uh, what's going on. And it does give you that really uneasy sense. And then terrible things begin to happen. So that's executed well. It, they just can't maintain that for the rest of the movie. Right. One of the praises I gave Lady in the Water was when we were, when was the couple of scenes where we were walking through and more or less just kind of hanging out with the residents of the apartment. And although this movie does have some pretty colorful characters, namely Mrs. Jones, I will still say that uh, <laughs> these characters are interesting and in a good way because even Mrs. Jones, who is crazy uh, and is way overacted, still has a very interesting concept to her where she is completely shut off from society and lives completely alone. And there is some subtleties to her character where you, we kind of figure out just by visual alone that she was married and that her husband died maybe even in war and that she hasn't really fully recovered from that yet. They talk about this in the special features. It's kind of an interesting idea. Now, once again, how that's pulled off is a completely different matter. And we'll talk about that later. But uh, I will say that even though this movie is also riding on some of its characters and in its enjoyability with its characters and how crazy they can be, like the hot dog guy and Mrs. Jones, they are still interesting characters, albeit ones that are not really well fleshed out, I guess I could I guess I could say. Yeah, I would say the, the side characters are zany, whereas our yeah. main characters I found to be incredibly bland. And yeah, that was something oh, yeah. I was really surprised and disappointed about was that we're never really given a reason to care about the main characters. And Shyamalan has been great about this in his previous movies. His characters have always had something in their past they need to overcome, whereas these characters seem to have nothing except their marriage has grown kind of cold and stale. I don't think that's really told to us very well. And at the same time, 
I don't really believe, I really struggled to figure out whether they're acting, they're, they act this way on purpose, like really uncanny and ridiculous, or are they, are they really trying to give this their best effort? Cause everyone comes across like they're mildly high on something as if they're not really <laughs> in reality any longer the way, the way they right. act. So I, I'm really just disappointed because I don't really understand these characters and their background. I will say this. Uh, I watched all the deleted scenes that were included on the Blu-ray. Um, there are, especially the first one, which is essentially an entire scene ripped out from the movie. Uh, this deleted scene is kind of what explains to us a lot of character development and really what's been going on with Alma and Elliot. Uh, because we kind of get an idea that there was a fight. Um, it's outside of there was a fight. We're not really sure what exactly it was about uh, from the movie that we do get. And that's mostly from um, from Julian, his, uh, Elliot's friend. But this scene is, I think it takes place... Mm, I actually don't know where it takes place in the movie, but uh, it it introduces it introduces a number of things. For one, it introduces this character trait that Elliot is still kind of a kid, and that he's still very optimistic. Whereas, uh, whereas the wife Alma is more of a realist. It also explains uh, as to, and this kind of leads into why she's so upset. Um, at the same time, it also introduces. Uh, the mood ring, which I will give another positive and also criticism of that. <laughs> uh, it's an interesting idea, but at the same time, they'd go nowhere with it. Uh, and then they also introduce, um, oh, that was one more thing that they introduce. Uh, it doesn't matter, but there is a number of things that they introduce in this one scene alone. It was taken out of the movie for whatever reason. And some of those things, mainly just the fact of the main fact of character development and the fact that there was a fight and now we know what it's about was taken out. That leads a lot of unanswered questions, namely, what were they fighting about? Yeah, what they were fighting about. That's kind of the central question. And yeah. it feels almost invented, like we're getting near the third act and Shyamalan realized there really isn't much plight for these two characters to kind of like overcome together, like have this kind of redemption together. Right. So it feels like it's just kind of brought out of nowhere, especially because crazy Mrs. Jones and her intuition is like, I don't even know what she's saying. She's saying something like who's, who's chasing who. And then he raises his hand and I, I don't know. Everything feels like, uh, I don't know. Everything feels like this, like really bizarre, uncanny, self-aware film where it's like, this is how real actors would act, but we're trying to pretend and we're really trying to get there. We're, we're really trying to get up to those, those levels of acting and it's, it's not quite there. So I yeah. guess in the beginning, what I, what I understand is John Leguizamo's character, which I think is pretty good at kind of expressing emotions to Mark Wahlberg's character is he's saying, you can't really rely on your wife in tough situations. She's kind of a flake. You've never been really open to seeing that. You don't really want to believe it, but it's true. And I guess the one scene that I thought was pretty effective was when uh, Zoe Deschanel is going to take the little girl's hand, like it was almost daughter. And he said, mm -hmm. don't you take my daughter's hand unless you mean it. And she didn't. 
take her hand. I don't think um, Mark Wahlberg had to kind of bring her along. So that kind of interplay between them right there, I thought worked well. And the other thing is Alma is getting a phone call from Joey consistently. And I'm like, oh, okay, so she's kind of having an affair. But then she admits it pretty easily later on that she wasn't staying late at work. She went out to get a drink with this guy. And then Mark Wahlberg makes, I would say, a pretty funny comment about a cute pharmacist uh, also hitting on him, but it was a joke. Once again, I don't think any of this really goes anywhere, nor do I really care that much because I never thought their marriage was in, in jeopardy in the first place. Right, yeah, the marriage in jeopardy kind of thing really just kind of comes out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, it's explained to us through Julian, uh, John Leguizamo, uh, and then it's kind of here and there. All we really know and all that's really ever told to us is, yeah, that uh, Alma went out for dessert with Joey, who actually is played by M. Night Shyamalan, believe it or not. Um, Wait. He's just a voice. Oh, okay. I Yeah, because Shyamalan always yeah. cameos, so technically this is a voice cameo, I guess. I was looking right. for him, and I thought he might have been like this just guy sitting in the background, but ultimately I, comp- I completely forgot and didn't care. Right. Right. So that's really the only thing we really know about Joey and that there weren't any deleted scenes that explained this either. So it's, I'm kind of the dark. Joey isn't really anything. She's not really, without the context of the marriage that's already somewhat in jeopardy from the beginning, from the deleted scene, Joey kind of feels like an afterthought um, just in general because he's really only there to kind of be a plot device kind of be more of a character trait uh it's it's not explained very well and a lot of this movie is kind of lost in editing uh that's kind of one of the things i picked up when i was watching these deleted scenes is there's a scene later on when they're all in the restaurant and the lady who's sitting next to mark Wahlberg, she's like oh my gosh my sister just sent this to me. Look at this. <laughs> yeah. And then after the video gets done playing, it has a reaction shot of John Leguizamo, who's looking at some other guy's phone. Yep. There's a deleted scene of this where the guy he's looking, whose who's phone he's looking at, does also show him a video of something else that was sent to him, uh, which is something completely different. So it's just, oh. there's a lot of stuff that's just lost in editing. Uh, and I'll probably talk some more about editing a little bit later. But yeah, it's just, the, this movie's not edited very well at all. And there's a lot of things, especially the couple of scenes where things are just missing. Once again, that one, this one scene in the restaurant, and then, of course, the ones that was just completely ripped out uh, with the couple having the fight. Yeah, that scene did confuse me because the lady is talking to Mark Wahlberg and she said her sister sent it to her, but then it's like Uzama watching on a man's phone. And I thought, yeah. okay, maybe... This man knows someone who was standing next to the sister at the zoo at the exact same time. And Facebook wasn't really much of a thing in 2008, not like it is now. Like sharing videos across social media would, I mean, we saw one iPhone, which the iPhone, I think, came out in 2008. Uh, It came out in 2006. But even then, it wouldn't have been that popular because it's still really is still kind of a new thing at the time. Right. So that's why I was a little confused on, I guess, the sharing of information through right. the through cellular devices, especially in that scene. So yeah, they don't know what they're doing, I guess, in the editing room. But yeah. coming back to Alma and what what's Mark Wahlberg's character's name? Elliot. 
Elliot. Okay, coming back to Alma and Elliot's relationship, oftentimes films to show couples in jeopardy or they're going to break apart and then bring them back together is usually it'll have them. Uh, usually they will have lost a child. We see that oftentimes used in film is the loss of a child is what is kind of tearing them apart. So I think that probably could have been perfect for this film because it follows that exact formula because right. in those films that utilize that the couple usually ends up taking in a child who has lost their own parents and taking care of them through the rest of the film or the couple ends up becoming pregnant and kind of starting a new literally rebirth and redemption through that as well. So it follows those exact kind of uh, story tropes, but it right. doesn't have that high tension to begin with, with them losing a child. It's just they're feeling distant from each other, I guess, which I didn't even understand. I just thought Alma was this high strung neurotic person that was hard to deal with and Wahlberg and Deschanel turn in absolutely horrible performances. So I never even buy them as a couple to begin with. Right. So this is the one thing I, I'm, when I talked about the, this scene where they have the fight that's deleted, uh, I did say earlier that there was one thing I was missing. This is the one thing I was missing. She does talk about how she wants to have a kid, uh -huh. but she's scared to have a kid because of all the craziness that's happening in the world. So she doesn't really want to have a kid. So that's set up also in that one scene, <laughs> which makes the ending even more impactful when she finds out that she is pregnant and she's excited about it. Yes. And this kind of helps, and Jess of course helps them through this, helps them figure out maybe we do want a kid uh, throughout the whole movie. So yeah, that's the other thing I I forgot to mention earlier is that's also in that scene, which admittedly kind of important. So I don't know why the scene was taking out. Maybe it was just for a pacing thing because it is like five minutes long, but I, I have no idea what was taken out. It explains so much. I like that the film, especially in the first act, moves fairly quickly. And this movie is, it feels like one of the quickest movies I've ever seen. Uh, the way the pacing flows. I mean, blink and you'll miss it and the movie's already done. But we absolutely could have used some a lot stronger setup to care about these characters and know what is going on like previously in their lives before right. this happens. And neither do we even really take that mid movie stop where characters get real time to breathe and kind of discuss their problems they're going through just to get you that set up for them to fix it there in the climax of the film we, we really right. don't get any of that set up it's just very disappointing and these uh side characters come in and out and you don't ever really care about any of them either Oh, yeah. No, I absolutely agree. And I know that's one thing that Shyamalan was kind of going for was this relentless tension uh, in this movie to kind of keep things going. Yeah. I wouldn't really call it tension, <laughs> but uh, that is one of the things he was going for was to kind of keep the pacing pretty quick. And I will admit the pacing does help uh, this movie quite a bit. It does move at a pretty nice pace. Uh, I wouldn't call it necessarily relentless, but I would call it definitely a nice brisk pace in terms of uh, i guess speed so yeah it's not something i would consider to be blink and you miss it personally but i do find it to be a good way to enjoy the movie even if you are alone to have it being paced this way not like maybe a, a movie that's slower but still so good that it's bad one thing i really didn't understand was in the beginning of the film when mark Wahlberg is trying to get his students to theorize why 
bees have disappeared in mass droves from the earth? Like, how would they know that? Why would anybody know that? And he's like expecting them to come up with these great answers. And of course, the good looking jock comes up with the exact right answer that the scientists will regurgitate in the end of the movie, which I thought was unbelievably stupid. Mm-hmm. But we get that uh, shot of uh, Albert Einstein's uh, statement where if bees disappeared from the earth, then man would only be able to last another four years. And I thought, why are you ruining the movie for me right here in the beginning? Because all the characters think it's a terrorist attack. But judging by what I just read on the board, I know it, it either has something to do with bees, but overall it's environmental. It's not a terrorist man-made thing. Oh yeah, no, yeah, it's, this ends up being a very environmental movie. And uh, yeah, that scene or that shot there in the beginning kind of gives a lot away where it, yeah, the scene of the quote from Albert Einstein, this whole uh, B scene is more or less just set up anyways. Uh, It's just setting up that something is going to happen. and It's not really going to be explained by any, any kind of logic. Um, I mean, not much that we can be explained by logic, but it's that's more it's more that's word in setup land and that's what it is although i would consider it to be a very weak setup because it's very blatant in what exactly is about to happen anyways so yeah and Shyamalan always in his previous films for the most part they've always been very transcendental films asking the mm-hmm. big questions about our relationship to god sometimes the christian god sometimes more of hindu gods or just kind of pantheism in general This time he seems to turn his eye on mother nature and seems to say, well, what if I make more of this weird environmental film? And even one of the kids in the beginning says, oh, it must be caused by climate change. Um, Or or what does he say? Global warming. Yeah. Yeah. We don't call it global warming anymore. Now it's only called this ambiguous climate change. And so he does make this kind of worldview and statement of, Humanity has kind of become a plague on the earth, and this is Mother Nature reacting in order to kind of purge the earth and cleanse it from this infection, which is straight out of, it hasn't come out yet, but it's straight out of Mother. That was kind of one of the big points of Mother, which was just more of an allegory, which if you're going to make a movie like that, I guess watch Mother because it's told super better than (laughs) i know i'm an english major and that's not correct english but the allegorical way of telling that narrative although i believe that worldview is completely ridiculous and wrong nevertheless it was told in a better way i find this worldview to be ridiculous this weird environmentalist yeah and even then it's kind of half-baked because he doesn't really have much to say anyways like usually when you have like a movie like Mother, it offers some kind of solution where actually in the case of Mother, it is more of a cautionary tale. But even then, like most movies that do that are rather environmental have some kind of solution added to them. Or even if they're not solutions, they're like Mother where they're just cautionary tales. This one, I guess you can consider it a cautionary tale, but it has its substance is so weak it's so shallow with what it's trying to say that it completely misses the mark and becomes just a bunch of schlock it's i can see what he's going for but i think one of the bigger issues he's running into is he doesn't have he doesn't really know what to say or if he knows what he's trying to say he doesn't say it very well at all yeah absolutely there this is very weak 
what he is trying to say. And ultimately, I am not even sure where Shyamalan comes down on right. this environmentalist message of do we need to treat the earth better? And he doesn't. He should have opened the movie if he's going to be more heavy handed and go for it. Then don't talk about disappearing bees, which I don't even know. It doesn't even make sense and like doesn't even come back around in the end of the film, if I'm not mistaken. But it doesn't. (laughs) There should have been more, I guess, talk of pollution. And I guess if you want a movie that deals with that even better than talk about First Reformed that talked about environmentalism and how do we deal with that and should we destroy the earth and should we even give some kind of reverence to the earth uh first reformed of course deals with that in a much better way than this movie where i i'm never quite sure because um neither does this overall worldview and statement necessarily even tie into the main character's situation it has nothing to do with them and therefore how can it have anything to do with us because we're going at it from their perspective and yeah, you're, it just becomes a bunch of schlock. And then Shyamalan seems more interested in just making this cheesy week, 50 sci-fi ending where it's just like, Oh, it's going to go global and it's going to hit the world. And um, if you want something that does a lot better job than that, then go watch contagion. Um, <laughs> I just, yeah, you're right. What's, what's the point? Shyamalan doesn't even really say. Right. Yeah. And even and like you, I think you get the name in the head there. It's kind of hard to f- really figure out where he stands with this issue. I mean, he clearly wants to say something. I mean, it's pretty obvious. But what exactly his beliefs are with this issue are pretty ambiguous um, because it, he tries and he does kind of talk about this in the special features. And I think what's going on here is he's trying to balance this. Once again, this redemption arc, which has happened in a lot of his movies with the couple who do end up coming back together at the end um, with this environmental message that he's trying to balance. He he has these two things. He's trying to balance them, but he doesn't do a very good job because one's already really weak. That being his environmental message. And one of them, he cut out a bunch of stuff to make the movie pace, maybe pacing better. So you have this battle. and, And this is once again, kind of all done through editing where you have this weak script and you have weak editing, and it kind of comes together in this honestly kind of interesting little movie we have here that's more of an enigma than it is a movie, um, which is not good because if a director wants to say something, then I feel like I shouldn't be confused, especially if it's something that they think is very, very a very important topic. I shouldn't be confused as to what their uh, worldview or stance is on that topic when the movie is finished. Whereas with this one, I still have no idea what his beliefs are other than that uh, this is bad humans are bad to the environment and that's about all i get and we do get two endings to the film we get the ending where zoe de chanel is pregnant and they're all happy about Mm -hmm. that but then cut to paris and we see that it's gone global more of the blockbuster ending i guess you could call it the Shyamalan twist because this movie is unbelievably anticlimactic Oh, yeah. And also, (laughs) I'm thinking, I don't know, uh, Lady in the Water was far more climactic than this film and far more epic. I'm I'm just trying to think, like, does Shyamalan really think we care that they're walking out into the wind and the wind is blowing and they're walking out into the wind to to meet each other and they know they're, they're surely about to die? And nothing happens. And then Mark Wahlberg, we get a voiceover from him. 
and nothing happens. And then we get a voiceover like three months later and he said, it must have stopped right before we walked outside. Okay. There's nothing transcendental about this. They don't tie it into divine providence or anything. It's just the earth decided to randomly target Philadelphia, New York area, wipe some people out for 24 hours. Okay. Um, I did notice the trailer was contradictory because the trailer said it had spread to California and that's not the case in the film. It's only isolated to like the Northeast coast, but then yep. we see in the end it goes global. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I do kind of want to talk about is um, <laughs> uh, the editing. I, I've mentioned this a couple of times, and now I really want, I actually do want to talk about this time. Uh, the editing in this is a nightmare, <laughs> to say the least. There is a great example um, with, with what I call the word normal scene, where it just kind of jumps around from thing to thing to thing to thing. Um, with no real con connective tissue, because we have this scene that begins uh, with them walk with them already at this house, right? And then Jess is swinging on a swing, and then at some random point she goes, "What kind of tree is this?" And then they all turn around and go, and Elliot says, "I think it's maple." Yeah, and then, stupid. yeah, and then we turn back around, and then next thing we know, uh, one of the kids, I think Josh, is his name, he's like. Mr. Moore, I think I could break down this door. And he starts kicking the door. And then not long after that, they are both dead. So in the editing room, I guess there were a lot of uh, choices that were made um, to cut down and once again, maybe pace it out a little bit better. But this scene is a great example of a scene that pa is paced so much better in the, the deleted scenes because and one of the reasons why I took this out is it's a shot of Jared who shot in the head. Uh, we don't really see it in the final cut, but in the deleted scene, we do see the shotgun uh, pop out of the window and then shoot him and the back part of his head just kind of blows off. Um, it's not terribly violent, but apparently he wanted to take it out to not get the NC-17 rating, um, supposedly. But yeah, this is one of those scenes where it's like, okay, this is a little bit better in terms of pacing for the scene alone, but the editing in this movie overall is just honestly atrocious. Then I have already mentioned the one scene that I feel is super important, that being the fight that happens, that explains a lot of things. But this movie's editing is, oh boy, it's a, it's, it's honestly part of the charm. It's definitely part of the charm of this movie. Yeah, that scene where the two young boys get shot just came out of nowhere. So I guess if people knock on your door too often at the end of the world, they're going to stick out their gun and shoot you. I guess you probably should be paying attention. Because he's not, <laughs> even though he's kicking in their door and then he decides not. That was seen, I that cemented it for me as so bad, this is good. This yep. is completely hilarious. And of course, the end when they walk out into the wind. Yeah, and I was also so thinking, good. like you were saying, when they're asking these random questions, what kind of tree is this? I think it's a maple. Okay, and I'm thinking... Are we going to become the Wizard of Oz all of a sudden and the trees are going to start attacking you and throwing right. apples at you? I just find it funny how with the last film, this film, Shyamalan thinks this is really suspenseful and scary. 
and he's focusing on a tree, on a tree limb. Like, don't you aggravate that tree limb? Don't you aggravate mm-hmm. that tree, or else it it will just destroy you, or else it'll release its own toxin. Uh, it it just comes across as a joke. And yeah, the editing, I guess, also contributes to why this film moves so quickly, is mm-hmm. because they don't really take time for anything. Um, what did they do with the two boys that got shot? Yeah, they just so. The two boys, um, they just kind of show up. They are part of the group that all kind of came together a bit earlier in the scene. They just kind of show up. Same with the hot dog man and wife. They just kind of show up. Uh, this movie has a lot of side characters that just kind of pop in at random times and then leave at random times when the script says, okay, well, we're done with you. So that just happens a lot. Yeah, so they shot him and I guess... They left him there. <laughs> they left him there. Elliot, Nama, <laughs> and the little girl just fled. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I did think it was also a poor conclusion for John Leguizamo's character, how it hits him, and they just the Jeep speeds into the tree and crashes, and then he just shows a shot of him beginning to cut his wrists to die, and then we never see him again. Yep. Yeah, once uh, the car crashes and he sits on the road, uh, that that that's it. The character that we've kind of been building up all all up until this moment, his death is just kind of meh at the end. It's meant to be like something kind of kind of really sad and thought provoking because uh, it is much different than the deaths that just happened in front of him, where people were thrown out from the front of the car. Uh, but it happens one way too early. And two, there needed to be more on his character for it to make any kind of impact, which there were neither of. Uh, so, yeah. I just, they, I never feel any emotions, though, especially when mm-hmm. John Leguizamo has to part with his daughter. That should be a really hard, hard-wrenching scene. But, of course, like you said, all of this comes too early for us to really care. Whereas I'm particularly thinking of I Am Legend, where we're shown in kind of interspersed flashbacks towards the end of the film about how Will Smith has lost his family and then the impact of what he, I won't spoil the end because it's great, but the impact of him, what he does in the end means so much more. Whereas we don't have any of this here. Uh, I honestly couldn't just help but think of Birdemic while (laughs) watching this film because they meet random people. I don't give a care about either of these two characters. It's horribly edited. Um, The R-rated visual effects are really not that gruesome. Mm -hmm. Definitely morbid in a lot of these scenes watching. uh, Probably the most effective one is when the construction crew is just a shot of them tumbling off the side of the wall. Um, but yeah, nevertheless, this is a higher production value of Birdemic, essentially. Which is, who <laughs> <laughs> You can listen to that's, our review, listeners. We reviewed that for Alan's birthday. That's right. I made Corbin watch this. I think a second time, Twice. actually, because I think we, yeah, that's right, because we watched it with just uh, you and I and a bunch of friends. Yeah. And so I made you watch it again for yeah. those to review it. <laughs> yeah, it was great. So there's a line in this movie um with that uh Zoe de Chanel Alma says to Jess and she says to her uh something to the effect of you do you and I are much the same uh I don't like to show my emotions either which is hilarious yeah. coming from this movie because of how much emotion they try to evoke but don't 
I think a great example is the scene when Mark Wahlberg is crying after he fi- after he figures out that uh, John Leguizamo is dead, and then Jess comes over, and then they both start crying together. And if you kind of listen closely, you can hear Jess crying, and it doesn't sound very real to me. Um, this is hilarious coming from this movie. A line that says something that the a line that says, "I don't like to show my emotions very much either," which is. Hilarious, again, because no one shows any kind of emotion anywhere in this movie. They try, but you can tell they're faking it. If they're not faking it, then uh, they're not acting very well. Yeah, if we haven't already mentioned it, the acting is abysmally awful. Just oh, yeah. <laughs> truly awful. I can't even understand. There's no range of emotions anyone gives. And what they do give, it's it feels like a parody. It feels like I'm watching... Something on Funny or Die, or I'm watching. Uh, there's a great uh, miniseries you should check out called The Spoils of Babylon, which stars Toby Maguire, Will Ferrell, um, gosh, Tim Robbins, so many other people. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a parody of kind of a, like a, dramatic epic miniseries that's how i felt with this except this one they were really trying to act and be legitimate about it and real like we're supposed to take this seriously even though it's absolutely atrocious i did laugh at that line i also thought it was funny when um of course everyone's favorite come on guys take an interest in science (laughs) um we're we're in a small town nothing bad can happen here turns on tv Smaller towns are the targets. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They released it out in the field. You think they released, the terrorists released it in the field out in uh, whatever the county name is. Mm -hmm. Um, Alan, you've got a couple other lines written down. Oh, yeah. No, I have an entire section of my notes that's at least, I don't know, page, page and a half of just different lines. I won't read them all, but there are some pretty great ones in here. Uh, for example, can you believe how crappy people are from Alma? Um, hey, why would you just stop? You can't leave us here. We lost contact with whom? Everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or um, let's see here. Chili isn't at uh, Chili isn't today, Sal. Maybe a little, which is just there for no reason. Yeah, that. Was um, let's see here. No reason. Yeah. Oh, this one's great. This is one of my favorites. Hot dogs. They get a bad rep. They got a cool shape. Protein? You like hot dogs, right? I think I know what's causing this. It's the plants. You like hot dogs, don't you? And then Mark Wahlberg starts speaking to the plant in the house. He's like, we're just going to ah, yes. come in. We're just going to use the bathroom. I hope that's okay. Please don't don't kill us. And I just lost it. I <laughs> couldn't even believe what I was watching. I couldn't even believe pen to paper. Someone gave Shyamalan $48 million to oh, put I this know. on the screen. And yeah, it, it did reap a pretty, pretty big profit with like worldwide 160 million or whatever. I just couldn't believe it. Um, and of course, one of my favorites when Mrs. Jones goes increasingly insane mm-hmm. and she hears them whispering and she said, planning on uh, stealing my stuff, aren't you? And you're planning on killing me in the night? And Mark Wahlberg goes, no, no, of course <laughs> not. And then she just like goes to bed. And 
And then they have this huge argument the next day. She's totally insane. Then he just like keeps mm -hmm. following her. He's like, can we please talk about this? <laughs> Get out of there. She's insane. I'm surprised she didn't try and kill you. But the oh, way he man. says, no, we're not going to kill you. I'm like, you're saying it like you are. Like oh, you're yeah, a child. Yeah. What? No. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, here's the thing too. Uh, Mark Wahlberg's acting in this movie has kind of become infamous yeah. for how bad it is. Uh, because his, his his entire demeanor is this really high-pitched man. He's like, what? No. Or this is a great line, too. This is one of his opening lines. Perfect balance of features might not look so good five years from now. And don't I go back 10, ten years from now. Like, that's writing that M. Night Shaman put down onto a page. Because he says now like three times in that one, in that one like line or two. Yeah, I did like it when the vice principal came in. He's like, ooh, the Dark Lord, don't look her <laughs> in the eyes. And he like shuts the lights off. And I'm like, okay, that's pretty mm -hmm. funny. Um, but then they're they're talking about there's been an attack in Central Park. And then it's just like always hitting the parks. And for some reason, Alan Ruck is the principal in that scene just mm -hmm. for that scene. And uh, Alan Ruck, for those of you who can't place the name, he plays Cameron in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I don't understand. Alan Ruck gets these little bit parts sometimes, but I guess he gets what he can take. Um, most recently, I saw him in Star Trek Generations, where he was only in the first five to ten minutes of the film as the captain. Oh, man. I don't know. But yeah, Alan Ruck is here for some reason. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you've also got that one lady from uh, the cabin in the woods in the, in the opening. That's right. Yeah. I forget her name. It's in my notes somewhere. Actually, it's right here. She gets all uh, 60 seconds of screen time. Yeah. Kristen Connolly is her name. Uh, I saw her at the beginning. I was like, I know who that is. Yeah. I don't know who it is, but I know that I've seen her face before. Uh, that's why I had to look it up. But yeah, Cabin in the Woods. I did notice probably the biggest the biggest name outside of Deschanel and Wahlberg that we'll come back to, who will come back, we'll come back to in a later Shyamalan film is betty buckley mrs jones That's right yeah she is the psychiatrist in the movie split and she's a pretty That's right. important part in that film i was like i know her from somewhere so she does play in split and we'll talk about her performance in that film i don't know i honestly thought she was probably uh the best actress in the whole film because she seemed like she was at least trying and she was legitimately creepy, I would say. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I mean, part of the issue, too, is this script. I've kind of mentioned this earlier. This script is bad. Um, and so there really, really isn't much to work off of here just to begin with. So it uh, it sounds from the looks of things too, Mr. Betty Buckley, who played Mrs. Jones, did do a legitimately or at least tried to do a, a good job. Uh, with Mark Wahlberg and Dave Chanel, I mean, maybe, but I can't really discern whether it's the script or what, or what, or if it's them, because there are some times, especially that one scene when Mark Wahlberg talks about the psychiatrist and how he almost bought a superfluous, superfluous bottle of cough syrup because she thought it was cute, uh, where the scene starts off as it's supposed to be a funny scene. And then goes into bad territory and then wraps all the way around into it being funny again, <laughs> but for the completely wrong reasons. Because he just looks at her and she's like, are you serious? And he looks at her and just kind of looks at her and just like nods his head real slowly. And she's crying. She goes, thank you. It just kind of wraps all the way around for me as that scene was just so stupid that it was hilarious again. Yeah. And you're so lost at that point that 
it loses the original meaning of oh, yeah. why did the scene even have to exist in the first place? So I, I, before we wrap up here, I guess I can partially blame. I do want to partially blame Shyamalan for the script. I think he could have written a much stronger script judging off of his previous scripts. Oh yeah. So, Oh yeah. And it's not that the, that's not that all of the dialogue is necessarily bad or cheesy. Yes, some of it is. But then that's where I'm going to wrap around and put a lot of the blame at Deschanel and Wahlberg's feet for an absolutely horrible performance. And I was trying to think, what if Shyamalan actually had much better actors to work with? Unless he was giving them this really awful direction. I don't know. But what if they, what if he worked with some better people and there's people actually taking this more seriously, um, much more versatile actors? Would this film be better? And I do think it would be a bit better. I think it would make a little more sense. But their performances sell this into uh, garbage, cheesy, uncanny territory that it's hard to separate it from that oh the other thing i also want to mention is i think the title is horrible <laughs> yeah and yes it is <laughs> doesn't make any sense the happening i mean who named i don't it? think i've ever heard of a title that's so ambiguous in my entire life well and ambiguous and it just doesn't even make sense like it sounds stupid yep. it sounds like something an eighth grader in creative writing class would conjure up the happening i mean it, it and the amount of times we hear it said in this movie mm -hmm. it was driving me nuts where they're like what happened <laughs> oh is this really happening and i'm like oh okay so you wrote the script and you picked out oh my gosh what it wouldn't it be a great idea if we just called the film the happening and i hate it mm -hmm. um the only thing that good has come out of it is people refer to Thanos' snap and everybody getting erased. People refer to that as the snapping. So that's the only <laughs> thing I care about. <laughs> that's funny. I actually haven't heard. Actually, yeah, I don't think I've ever actually ever heard that one either. Yep. That's funny. The snapping. The only one other thing I do kind of want to talk about, which isn't really a part of like the film itself, but it's on the Blu-ray, is there is a tribute track on the Blu-ray. And I watched most of it to hopefully get some extra facts for the background information. I got some um, because the trivia track is almost a treat in itself. And I would <laughs> recommend that if you have it, you should definitely go watch it because it starts off fine. You get this nice little, the first one it gives you is the first day of production was in Central Park in 2007. All right, it's a pretty good, interesting fact. The next one is shot over 44 production days in continuity when possible. Pretty interesting fact. But then just suddenly starts evolving into just random tidbits of information that are loosely connected to the story. So you get things like 40 million hot dogs were eaten every year on the 4th of July. Or that uh, Philadelphia, not Philadelphia, but Pennsylvania is the 10th worst state for deer collisions. <laughs> what? There's or no deer collision in the movie, though. I know. That, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> And or this one's great too. In 1982, cell phones weighed as much as a Philly's as a Philly cheesesteak sandwich, which is roughly two pounds. It's just this it's hilarious because the trivia track begins with, you know, solid enough facts, but then just starts to devolve no more than about 10 minutes into just random, just random facts that aren't even hardly connected to the movie itself. It's hilarious. 
here are four extra facts for you. This film was not surprisingly nominated for four Razzies. I believe it. Including Worst Picture, Mark Wahlberg, Worst Actor, Shyamalan, Worst Director, and Shyamalan for Worst Screenplay. It didn't win any of them, surprisingly, even though it probably should. Yeah. But I mean, that also is no, yeah, that's no surprise that this got a bunch of Razzies. I would expect that the Razzies went, and from what I've heard, this is the case, they went nuts over this. Okay, I haven't read Roger Ebert's review, but I'll have to read it later because he gave it three out of four stars. Whoa! <laughs> now I'm going to look this up. This That's ridiculous. It is ridiculous. I can't wait to read uh, Roger Ebert's review of it. So I wonder if it's one of those so bad it's uh, good kind of things. I don't know. Yeah. No, no. Here's the final paragraph. I suspect I'll be in the minority in praising this film. What? I can't wait to read that, listeners. That'll give all of us something to look forward to after this review is reading Roger Ebert's praiseworthy review of the film. Oh, I'm excited. I read this now. This is too good. This <laughs> is too good. <laughs> but, Alan, I'm interested to know what is your rating and recommendation for The Happening? So, like I said in the opening, I tried to come in with as open as a mind as I could, but it is hard for me to do that because I have seen this movie before and I know what I'm getting into. But I, once again, I was able to give a lot more positives than I was expecting. However, that doesn't, that still does not negate how much I love this movie because of how bad it is. I've mentioned a bunch of lines that I, that I love and I have plenty more that I would that are still in my notes. There are some pretty, pretty amazing sequences in this movie, namely the weird normal scene with the house uh, is a great example of a scene that just doesn't make any sense at all. And it just plays out so ridiculous, which is kind of the movie in itself. Uh, it is ridiculous. And it, I think the problem here is partly at least is the fact that it takes a premise that has been done a million times before and is already rather basic and tries to put the Shaman formula onto it. And the problem with that is the Shyamalan formula doesn't play well with it. So we get this very interesting enigma of a film, which is strange because we've had the first three Shyamalan films are, I mean, we keep talking about are probably the three that he's most known for. But now we've come to this, which is a movie we had first we began with The Sixth Sense, which is considered to be by many people one of the greatest of all time to The Happening, which is the complete opposite, a movie that's so bad that it's amazing. So, yeah, I absolutely love this movie. It's great, and I own it on Blu-ray, and I'm so glad, glad that I do because it is a movie that I would... I wouldn't necessarily put it as high as Birdemic, but it is up there in movies that I think are worth your time if you're into bad movies that are so bad that they're good. So, 1 out of 10, obviously, but this <laughs> does come with a rare recommendation of a high recommend because I do adore this movie to death. That was my question, was do I give it a 10... Or do I give it a one? Well, let me first by asking the other question, what happened? Wink, wink. M. Night took a fun premise, that of the 50 sci-fi alien flick, which I believe he could do, and he made a terribly sloppy, worthless film. Well, it's not completely worthless. It's great for tearing apart with friends. <laughs> Shyamalan has some decent writing here, although it's not his best. But the actors he's working with should have all received Razzies. In fact, this film should have got worst Razzie of the year. It started with promise, but quickly devolved into a pile of garbage. 
I can see why everyone hates this film, albeit it is so bad it's good. The Happening receives one star out of 10, with my strongest not recommend. Unless you are watching it with friends, then it will be a complete blast to <laughs> watch together and, and laugh and tear apart. It'll give you lots of laughs with friends. But if you're just watching it on your own, judging off of its merits as a film, as a story, it is... Uh, I, I can't even believe how bad it is. I don't... <laughs> what happened? We knew Lady of the Water was the beginning of the end, but it wasn't as bad as this. I mean, this took a sharp nosedive. And from what I understand, uh, we're not going to be climbing out of it for quite a while. So I'm looking up the Razzies. I actually have them up right now. Uh, so it looks like the big winners... Um, well, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is definitely on this list. Uh, for worst prequel remake ripoff or sequel, uh, the Love Guru has a few um, on here that it's one like worst screenplay. Uh, let's up here again. Uh, well, worst actor is Michael My is Mike Myers uh, for for the Love Guru, and worst it also won worst picture. Oh. And you've also got Uva Bowles on here a couple of times. So yeah, while it didn't win in any Razzies, it definitely. Um, is worthy to be oh yeah hottie the naughty's on here yeah i've alan's, seen this movie alan's favorite movie oh yeah no it, it definitely belongs on this list uh, i i can't argue with with that but yeah that's kind of the razzies uh that we have here for this movie well i'm glad we're not going to be reviewing those other razzie movies not yet maybe someday we'll get to some maybe. more so bad it's good movies <laughs> But next week, I what is next week? Forgot to look next it week, up. I believe it is the last Airbender, actually, because that is next on the list. Actually, there was a small Easter egg in this one uh, that was alluding to the last Airbender because in one of the last shots of the movie, Jess is getting onto the bus with a last Airbender backpack, and the bus number on the bus is 2010, which is, I mean, the year that it comes out, uh, and also he also did uh, last Airbender in 2010, so. Little Easter egg that happened at the very end there. Uh, so he's clearly teasing his next project. Yep. For those with eagle eyes, they will realize Shyamalan's next project is the first time he's not doing an original screenplay. This will be an adapted screenplay from what many consider to be one of the greatest animated TV shows of all time. Uh, that would be which premiered on Nickelodeon, The Last Airbender. And Shyamalan will be doing his live action take on it. When I, I did see this film in theater, so I'm not new to it. I saw it with another friend and I was a fan of the Nickelodeon show. I watched it frequently. So I was very excited to see the live action rendition of the film. I have not watched it since almost 10 years ago in theaters. I'll see if my thoughts have changed, especially since I'm so far removed from the animated show. Alan, have you seen The Last Airbender, the movie? Now, the movie I haven't seen. I know it's not regarded very well. The TV show, however, I've seen um, not all of it, but a good chunk of it. So I definitely know the TV show uh, quite good, quite much better than the movie, of course, because I haven't seen the movie at all. But yeah, so I have some history, at least with the TV show, but I have no history outside of a couple of scenes that I've seen from the from the actual live action movie. Ah, okay. Well, listeners, you're definitely not going to want to miss our next week's review of The Last Airbender, aka Avatar The Last Airbender, which caused a lot of confusion with James Cameron's Avatar. Yes, it did. 
I am definitely sure Shyamalan wanted to write off of Cameron's coattails of success with that. <laughs> Some might even say he, this is almost like the asylum trying to write off of the coattails of bigger blockbuster movies. That's I'm just putting that out there. That's kind of how it feels. But we'll talk about that next week. You know, um, I'll be give a little sneak preview here. My recollections of the film are much better than my my thoughts on this movie. So gotcha. I'm not I'm not completely sure. I'm not going to say yay or nay right now, but I'm hoping that I won't hate the movie next week and I may even find some enjoyment and and like it. My guess is Shyamalan has kind of run out of his own ideas. He did write a screenplay for a film that he didn't direct, but it is a screenplay for a film that I'm going to watch. It's called Devil. Ah, yes. I know about this. I believe that came out in 2010 as well. So that's not officially a part of our review series, but I'll give you my thoughts on that when we talk about The Last Airbender next week. But Alan, thank you for joining me on uh, on this uh, interesting film. Absolutely. Listeners, we will see you next week with Avatar The Last Airbender. Hey listeners, it's Corbin. Don't forget to check out the exciting links in the description below that will connect you with more great movie reviews for your listening pleasure and our YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter page. And of course, our official website where you can read great articles and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. Also, if you want exclusive bonus content such as extra movie reviews, movie commentaries, and our thoughts on the latest movie news and trailers, plus more, then check out our Patreon page. It's a great way to help keep this show free, and it gives you great content that's yours to keep. All of that and more is found in the description below. Don't forget to subscribe whether you're on YouTube, Apple, Google, or Stitcher, or your favorite podcast service. And while you're at it, please leave us a five-star review so other movie lovers can more easily find our podcast. We love talking about movies, and we love talking about them with you. So don't forget to share with your friends and family, and we'll see you next week, listeners. The Silver Screen Guide podcast is edited and produced by Alan and Corbin. Intro and outro music is created by Thomas Rankin. The thoughts and opinions herein expressed are those of the individual and do not necessarily represent those held by Silver Screen Guide. Silver Screen Guide is not affiliated with any company or individual involved with the creation of this movie or TV show. No portion of the podcast may be used without express written permission from Silver Screen Guide. find their way to a rundown home with a swing. But before they had enough time to get to get paid. Okay. Uh, before that, okay, so...